Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today we're going to be looking at an important biblical principle that we know about, but we haven't really understood to the degree that we probably should have understood. And, and of course, God is in control of understanding, and our lack of understanding regarding this principle is all in God's hands, and it was just not intended for the believers to know this until this time. But I think, and actually I'm fairly confident, that understanding of this principle or a greater understanding of this biblical principle will help each one of us to know what God is doing in these days after the tribulation in Judgment Day. A better or more proper understanding of this biblical principle should assist the people of God in understanding why events have worked out the way they have leading up to May 21, 2011 and in this time period after May 21, 2011. That is, the people of God remaining on the earth and making an appearance before the judgment seat of Christ and being tried and so forth. All the many things that we've learned really are connected to an important biblical principle. Now we're going to read in John chapter 13, and the principle will be seen here, and then we'll begin our discussion on it. In John 13, I'm going to start from verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended... The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter. And Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, Thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? 
ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And I'll stop reading there. Now, the biblical principle that is so important is found in verse 15. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. And that's the point. That's the thing we want to look at more carefully in this study, that Jesus says, I have given you an example. Now, we've understood, and the people of God have understood for centuries and centuries, Christ is our example. There's nothing new there. We look to Jesus We see how he lived his life in perfect obedience and he carried out the will of the Father. And yes, he is our example in all things. But here it says, I have given you an example. That is his conduct, his behavior, the things he was doing, his life. His life is actually the example that he has given to the body of believers, to all of the elect, all those that Christ has saved. So when we look at Jesus' life, we're going to find an example, and not just an example that we can seek to model our lives after, that is, well, Christ was perfect in love and goodness and so forth, but we are going to find an actual biblical example for the body of believers that will work itself out at the end of time. That is, Christ's life and ministry and death, his suffering and his resurrection Everything about it, the timing of it, the events themselves, all relate and are established as an example that God has given that the body of Christ, the true believers, will follow at the end of time. Well, let's look at the word example. First of all, it's 5262 in the Greek of Strong's Concordance, and it's also translated as patterns in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 22, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Well, there we read of patterns of things in the heavens, or examples of things in the heavens. This word is also found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause... 
I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. So we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, long-suffering towards the Apostle Paul, was established for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him. So that tells us that the way that God put up with Paul, who blasphemed, he tells us that himself, he blasphemed, that is, he spoke evil of that way, the true way, the Christian way, the followers of Christ, and so forth. God endured or patiently put up with, long-sufferingly waited until the proper time, the road to Damascus, And then he entered into the apostle or Saul's life at that time and changed him and turned him into the apostle Paul. He made him a new creature. And that is a pattern to all that would believe on the Lord. So Paul, in his rebelliousness and then in his obtaining of mercy, is an example of the believers that will follow. Now, we also read of long-suffering in James chapter 5, verse 7, and we find the word example here also in this context. James 5, beginning in verse 7, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and has long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. So God is the husbandman, and he waits patiently, putting up with, enduring the sins of mankind for a particular reason until he receives the early and latter rain, because the rain produces the fruit, and that's what he's waiting for, the precious fruit of the earth. So he waits for the early rain during the church age, and then he obtains the first fruits. But still, God cannot yet bring wrath and punishment on the wicked because there's still the latter rain. So the Lord waits further for the Great Tribulation to work out and even waits for the second part of the Great Tribulation until the latter rain falls and completes the task it was sent forth to do and a great multitude is saved. Now the Lord has received the rain early and latter And as a result, the fruit, the precious fruit, all those to be saved, God's elect were saved. And now he no longer has to be long-suffering or patient or further endure the sins of mankind. So he brings judgment at the completion of the latter rain, which is simultaneous with the completion of the great tribulation. It's judgment day. The door shuts. No more salvation. And it is the time of the pouring out of the wrath of God upon the wicked of the earth. Well, that's the context. And it goes on to say in verse 8, Be also patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. You see in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, the context is judgment day. The long-suffering period is over because the rain's been received. Verse 8 mentions the coming of the Lord. Verse 9, the judge, who is the Lord, standeth before the door. 
That is, he's right there, and it is as close as it possibly can be. Then we read in verse 10, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. And the word happy here is a word that really means blessed. We count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. So we see that in this context of judgment day, God speaking to the brethren, which would be the people of God, the ones that are truly saved, take my brethren the prophets, and we need to remember that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of that would come after him. And not only that, but all the prophets spoke of Jesus. And so when we read of the example of the prophets for suffering affliction and of patience, it really identifies with Christ's example as the prophet and as the one that all the prophets spoke of. And so we don't miss that. Then verse 11 tells us, as it makes mention of the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. That is, the example of his suffering. His suffering. And the Lord told us, I have given you an example back in John 13, verse 15. I have given you an example, and a big part of that example during the end period of the Lord Jesus Christ was an example of suffering affliction. Now, let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now let me just interrupt the scripture for a second to look at this in a way maybe you haven't thought of before concerning the thankworthiness of suffering for well-doing. And as it says, this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. If a man is suffering and it's because of his conscience toward God, And we actually have a very good example, I didn't want to use that word, but that's the word. We have a good example of what God is talking about concerning suffering in a thankworthy way due to one's conscience toward God rather than someone who is buffeted for their faults, that is, their suffering for their wrongdoing, And they're afflicted and are buffeted. So we have one of two ways you can suffer. Now, let's look at this this way. Look at a person who is of another gospel. They're of another kind of a gospel, and yet they're a missionary for their gospel. 
and their gospel has added or subtracted from the Bible. Maybe they believe in divine revelation at this time after God has closed for many centuries since the Bible was completed any additional revelation. He assured us when Revelation 22 was written when he said whoever adds to the words of this book or subtracts the plagues written herein will be added unto him. So God then closed the holy canon, the Bible, and there would be no further divine revelation. The written word, the 66 books that we have, Genesis through Revelation, is the completed word of God. That's it. Nothing additional. And yet we have people who have added, who have subtracted, and they go forth and they suffer for their kind of gospel. They could suffer physically or they could suffer persecution. People mock, revile them, whatever. And yet there's no glory in that. There's no thankworthiness in that. But on the other hand, you have the people of God who believe and trust the word of God, the Bible, implicitly. They will not dare add a word or subtract a word. They know the Bible is the complete message that comes forth out of the mouth of God. And divine revelation is cut off. There is not to be dreams or tongues or visions. They have a great respect for the word of God. And they study it and study it. And in that study... They come up with an understanding of a timeline of history and all of a sudden things begin to fit in this timeline concerning the Great Tribulation and Judgment Day. And they learn that as everything fits together nicely, perfectly, and locks in, and it does so in a way that is just mind-boggling. They can't see how man could arrange these kinds of things because they know the Bible is the Word of God. They know that when things harmonize and fit together in the Bible, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, the Holy Ghost teaches. And so they see all these things fit into place, and they realize they see the sword coming, that is, the wrath of God is coming, and they see a set day, an appointed time, May 21, 2011. So for conscience toward God, it's completely out of conscience, out of an obligation as a watchman to blow the trumpet when you see the sword coming. You have no option. You must do this. And God even warns against those that see the sword coming and do not blow the trumpet. And he indicates they'll be guilty of the blood of the people they did not warn. So it really impresses upon the child of God a tremendous duty, responsibility, obligation to sound the warning to share the information with everyone they can meet or come in contact with because they, first of all, believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it is truth. And they believe that God communicates to His people through the methodology that He has laid out of comparing Scripture with Scripture, harmonizing conclusions, and in an honest way, in a very honest way, 
they see all this information lay out and point to a particular date, they cannot do anything but declare that to the world. And that's exactly what they did, and God used it. He used it in many ways to save his elect. It was the rain. It was a big part of that latter rain in order that the great multitude would be saved out of great tribulation. And it would complete God's evangelization program as he would save the last one of his elect. And so all these things worked according to the purpose of God. But also, the Lord had an additional purpose in which God, who is in full control, there's no question about this, God is in full control of what the reader of the Bible, the true child of God, can understand. Remember, Jesus opened their understanding in Luke 24 that they might understand the Scriptures. That's the only way that anyone can obtain understanding of the scriptures is if Christ opens up their understanding. And he can open it to as wide a degree or to a narrow degree according to his will. God is in complete control of what his people understand. And as we have continued studying the Bible, we have seen that God gave tremendous amounts of understanding. The wise man's heart discerneth time and judgment. So the people of God understood the timing properly. They understood the time of the Great Tribulation correctly, 8,400 days. They understood Judgment Day correctly, May 21, 2011. They understood the door would shut, salvation would end. The light of the gospel would go out correctly, correctly, correctly. But God permitted them to have certain pieces of information, and God permitted them an error. The people of God, God's elect who proclaim these things, God allowed them not to understand, that's what an error is, not to discern or comprehend certain aspects of the judgment, that it would be a spiritual judgment. They didn't know that. They thought this is it, this is going to be a physical earthquake and destruction, and the ground will open and everyone will see God come through the tremendous destruction that will take place on the earth, and also the rapture, we had that wrong. And that was an error. That was a mistake the people of God made. But again, could not the Lord have corrected our understanding? Yes, but he did not. He permitted the believers to wrongly accept and believe this and proclaim it. And when we say God permitted, it doesn't mean he caused it. He just allowed it to happen. But overall, for the most part, There was a tremendous accuracy and understanding, proper understanding of what was going to happen. And like today, we haven't changed in our understanding that May 21, 2011 was Judgment Day, that the door shut, the light of the gospel went out. And we knew all these things years in advance. 
that it would occur on that date. So we've grown in understanding those things, but it's been a continuance. Yet, right away, immediately, we realized we were wrong about the physical, the visible aspect of Judgment Day. The people of the world did not see it. They did not experience it with their physical senses in any way. It was not something you could see or hear or smell. And therefore, they rejected it and... They rejoiced, and at the same time, they looked at the true believers carrying that message, and they mocked, and reviled, and ridiculed, and they just viewed the people of God as fools, and, well, if they were unsaved within the churches and congregations, they viewed the people of God as heretics, as being of some strange sect, and so forth. So here in First Peter, God says, This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Really, what God did was to set the stage. He made preparation, and the preparation was to allow his people to have misunderstanding and to hold to erroneous conclusions in a couple of areas that would set the stage. It laid the groundwork for his plan for them to follow the example of Christ's suffering into the day of judgment. And we'll talk more about that. But you see, Christ's example of suffering was that he was sinless, and he was perfect in every way. He was holy and just, and he did the will of God, and he suffered for it. Now, God's people are made righteous in their new born-again souls, but we're sinners. We still have bodies of flesh, and we sin. So we cannot follow that example in the same way that Christ did, where he was without sin and knew no guile and so forth. But we are able to follow it in the way that God set it up, where very honestly, very faithfully, with great trust in the word of God, the Bible. That's what Christ had. He had a tremendous trust and faith in the word of God. And for that word in doing all that the Father had him to do, Jesus suffered and died and went to the cross and experienced the shame of the cross. And that is the example of suffering affliction that James spoke of. It is the example that he has set or given that the believers will follow as they, at the end of time, would enter into the day of judgment. All right, let me keep reading here in First Peter 2, verse 19 again. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, 
ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. And what was one of the first early on things that came to light after the tribulation and May 21, 2011 came and went and all the people of God were stunned because it was absolute. It was guaranteed. The scriptures locked it in. And yet here we were trusting the Bible and we then entered into this period of time. Well, it wasn't long when we realized that there was a need of patience. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Notice, after ye have done the will of God, This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God, again, did God's people do the will of God? Well, not if you ask the churches, certainly. If you ask the churches, uh, no, it was complete rebellion and heresy, and they really mean rebellion against them, and heretical concerning their teachings, But, no, the churches definitely do not think the people of God in proclaiming Judgment Day to the world did the will of God. Well, if you go to the world, they would agree. Of course not. Nothing happened. But what is the will of God? The will of God is the Scriptures. It's laid out in the Bible. And again, when you lay out all that information... And God's people studied, studied, studied. And Mr. Camping was certainly putting in hundreds and hundreds of hours studying and studying and studying. And at any point, the Lord could have opened up that little bit more information, just like we know now when we see in the Garden of Eden, when God said, in the day you eat, you will surely die. Well, now we look at it and we see, oh, it was a spiritual death. It was a spiritual judgment. And that's what God did with the churches. It was a spiritual judgment. And the cup of wrath, the Bible says, was first given to the city called by his name, and then the nations. So there God indicates the spiritual judgment will be the meeting out of the cup of his wrath to the church first. Why would it then change in nature when it comes to the nations? So the evidence is there. We can see it clearly now, but we could not see it then. Again, because God controls what his people know and to the degree they know it. And so the Lord's people had all the information according to the information they had available to them that they had understanding of, it locked in with a guarantee there was no option out of the sense of conscience towards God. There is no other option. You cannot sit on that information. You cannot conceal it. You cannot say, well, I'll wait till it locks in further when it locked in to the point it did and very few doctrines lock in that tightly. And in other words, more than sufficient, there was abundant evidence, biblical evidence, that this was going to happen, and therefore 
there was no other way, no other option but to proclaim it and to warn people. And it was according to the will of God that the people of God did this. There's no other way of looking at it. Just look at where are the elect today? Where are the elect people of God to be found? God has always had a proclamation of truth where the elect have been in evidence. Or what I'm trying to say is that, say, several hundred years ago, there was a reformation. The church went apostate, but there was a reforming. And this group over here, that would identify with the people of God. Well, then the whole church at the time of the end went apostate. And God... Again, reserved truth. He reserved the people for himself. And they began to be drawn to and identify with the ministry of family radio. And Mr. Camping was leading that through his teaching. And so God's people identified the elective God, identified not with the church, but with the ministry of family radio. And it was very evident. Very evident when you look at what churches teach and how they teach it. That's as important as what they teach. And when you look at how high of a regard they hold the church itself and the church's teachings, and not so high a regard concerning the Bible's authority and the Bible's teaching, it's evident. It's very clear the church lifts up the teachings of its denomination that have been set in stone by the reformers and they will not change them. And yet here's a ministry, just the Bible, just the Bible. No, we don't add to it. We don't subtract to it. Just the Bible. A great emphasis, tremendous emphasis on the Bible alone. What the reformers called sola scriptura. It is only the word of God we trust It is our sole basis for faith. It is the authority. You can't get any more faithful than that. And it wasn't just lip service. It was evident. It was seen in the way the Bible was approached, in the teaching, the Bible studies, and the printed material where God's people received these things, poured over them, and saw Yeah, scripture with scripture. That's what the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit teaches. And here a little, there a little. There's really no question that the elect people of God were drawn to this ministry, and then the ministry became known throughout the entire world, and the elect people of God throughout the entire world were drawn to this ministry. They identified with that ministry, not today, I need to point that out, not today, but at that time, in the time leading up to May 21, 2011, the elect people of God identified with that ministry because that's where truth was, and the elect people of God follow truth, and truth, the Lord Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. So they were following Christ as the truth was proclaimed. And so God blessed that ministry, opened up all kinds of doors, all sorts of opportunities all over the earth, 
and with very relatively little funds, they were able to do this enormous worldwide broadcasting and reach people all over the world and in practically every nation. And God was blessing, blessing, blessing. And then suddenly, suddenly, we're to believe. This is what the church would have us believe. This is what the world would have us believe. That it was just all wrong. It was just completely all wrong. These people and the teacher, Mr. Camping, who taught them. Well, you know, if you... Sometimes I type in Mr. Camping's name just to look for studies, and it doesn't fail. All of the horrible, ugly things that people have said about him and churches have said about him, they have vilified him in a way that is just terrible. And it's been done by people who do not know the truth themselves. It's been done by churches that are other kinds of gospels and so forth. But this has happened where basically God led his people. He led his people to a point where they accomplished the task of warning the world. And God through that saved all those to be saved. And then the Lord delivered them up. The Lord delivered them up for an appearance before his judgment seat. And we don't have time in this study to get into the example of the many examples of the Lord Jesus Christ's life and how the believer's time at the end of the world matches. In some cases, it matches perfectly. And let me just say, for instance, how long did Jesus minister? What was the duration of his ministry? Well, the Bible tells us that Christ ministered for three and a half years. Three and a half years. And when Jesus was going about for the three and a half years, he had mostly freedom. He could travel within Judah. He could travel in Samaria or he could travel in Galilee. He went about all those regions and no one interfered. No one stopped him. Basically, he had free reign. And what did Jesus do during that three and a half years? He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind, ears to the deaf. He opened up the mouth of the dumb. And he did many miracles of healing. And we know in the Bible that miracles of healing point to salvation. All right, so Christ had a ministry of three and a half years in which he did miracles of healing. Well, how long was the believer's period of ministry? Let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. I'll start there. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. 
and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So this verse tells us of the 70 weeks that God is prophesying of, and that 70th week, the last week, is broken up. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And so the beginning of the 70th week began with Jesus' baptism and the start of his earthly ministry, the three and a half years. And so it was as though the 69 weeks took us to that point. Then when Jesus began to minister, it was a literal three and a half, three and a half years. And then Messiah was cut off. Christ went to the cross and sacrifice ceased. Never again would God accept the sacrifices of men as a sign or as a demonstration of what Christ would do. Christ ended those ceremonies of all sacrifices when he went to the cross because he fulfilled them all. And that was in the midst of the week after three and a half years of ministry. Then Jesus suffered and died. And how did Christ suffer and die? Well, the Jews. And who were the Jews? They were the people of God. They were the corporate body which were the outward representation of the kingdom of God on the earth at that time. And it was the people of God that took him and delivered him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. So it really was an apostate church of Israel that took Christ, and it led to his suffering and his death on the cross and the completion of his ministry and the completion of his time on earth. And remember, he began in 7 B.C., a jubilee year. 33 A.D. was 40 calendar years, 7 plus 33, 40 calendar years, and was all done. And when finally he died in 33 A.D., it was all done. Well, now we have the body of believers Christ is our example. He ministered for three and a half years. How long will the believers minister for? Well, let's go to Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That's twelve hundred and sixty days. Now, if you were to look at thirty-day months, then a year is 360 days. And 3 times 360 plus 180, which is half of 360, you have three and a half years, and it equals 1260 days. So the period in which the two witnesses prophesied, and that was the witness of the Bible within the churches and congregations, and the people of God were the caretakers of the Word of God, and of course closely relate to the two witnesses in that sense. That period of time for the elect to witness, to identify, again with the Word of God in the churches and congregations, 
was three and a half years. Just as Jesus ministered for three and a half years, the people of God ministered for three and a half years. And what happened at the end of the three and a half year period for the two witnesses? Well, we read that it says in Revelation 11 verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So they are killed, and their dead bodies lying the same street that Christ's dead body was found. When he was crucified, he died. You see how God is relating the two. The believers witness for three and a half years, figuratively, it stretches from the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in 33 AD all the way until the time of the end when the church age comes to an end in 1988. It's 1955 years actually, but it's likened to three and a half years. And then what happens? They're killed. They're overcome. And an apostate church, just like an apostate Israel, is instrumental in serving them up as they drive the believers out of the churches and congregations and spiritually, in that sense, are killing them as they, again, drive them out. Just as Christ was delivered up by an apostate Israel to death. It's a very strong similarity. And what did the believers do over the course of that church age? Spiritually, they healed the sick. They gave sight to the blind, ears to the deaf, a mouth to the dumb. Jesus said, the things that I do, ye shall do greater. You will do greater works. And no, not literally. There was no actual miracles of physical healing that were performed but there were tremendous numbers of spiritual healings performed as the gospel went forth, carried by the two witnesses during the course of the church age. And we don't know how many people were spiritually made whole that were saved, and therefore a miracle of healing upon their sin-sick soul was done And it was greater miracles than Jesus did, but still it was following the pattern. You see how the pattern of Christ's ministry, the pattern of his being delivered up, even the apostate corporate body of Israel, and lo and behold, at the time of the end of the world, there's an apostate corporate body of the New Testament church, that will basically conduct themselves as Israel did in relationship to Christ, the church will do in relationship to the body of Christ, to the true believers. Now this all relates to filling up the sufferings of the body of Christ, but it also is following the pattern, the example that he has given us. Well, we don't have time to go on. There's really a great deal of information that the Bible has in this area when we read, for example, of the command 
to take up your cross and follow me. Well, that command is activated. It's activated in the time of judgment. There's many things that Christ did in his earthly ministry or in the time when he was suffering all the way to the cross and after the cross with his resurrection that the Bible indicates the believers, the body of Christ, will follow the example. They will follow the example of his ministry. They will follow the example of being betrayed by a corporate body. They will follow the example of suffering and doing so for conscience toward God, as Christ did so for the will of God. The people of God suffer for conscience toward God, and that is thankworthy. It is a good thing. Well, let me just finish here in the minute we have left. In First Peter 2, verse 20, if, What glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently? This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Well, again, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. They should follow his steps. Take up your cross and follow me. It's not coincidental that in John 21, after the great catch of fish, after the command, feed my sheep three times, that Christ speaks of following him, and he speaks with Peter concerning the death he should die, which will glorify God. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.